Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading together verses 22 to 32 as we are in the middle of this sermon on Pentecost by the Apostle Peter. Before we read and study the Word, let's ask God's help and understanding. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we know we come to Your Word in need of You by Your Spirit to equip us for understanding. Lord, we know that the natural man cannot understand the things that come from Your Spirit. So Lord, would You grant Your Spirit to us to see these wonderful things, these truths that You have recorded for us to hear. And Father, we ask that You would write Your eternal truth upon our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Hear now the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken." Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that He would set one of His descendants on His throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Well, this is... God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, this morning we come to part two of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And previously, you remember, he was explaining the phenomenon of tongues, this overturning of Babel as the fulfillment of God's promise in Joel specifically. And Peter immediately focuses the hearers not on the wonder, but on the Word. You need to listen to God's explanation of the miracle. And then Peter explained, this is the inauguration of the last days. The day of the Lord, a day of salvation, evidenced by the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile, it has arrived. God is harvesting souls through the redemption found in Jesus. The beginning of the end is here. And indeed, we should recognize, based on the quote of Joel, that the Lord has also ushered in the day of judgment, when the heavens themselves are bearing witness to the terrors of the Lord. The sun goes dark. That should remind you of Jesus 
on the cross. For there, Jesus faced the judgment due His people. The sun refused to shine as the blackness of wrath fell upon Christ in our place. However, Jesus satisfied the justice of God due God's people. And there's no condemnation for us. And now we have the gift of intimacy with God through the Spirit as the Spirit is poured out. Well, therefore, Peter closed closed this first portion by quoting Joel 2 at the end there, that you should call upon the name of the Lord and therefore be saved. But the Lord upon whom you must call is Jesus particularly. The needy sinner must seek peace and pardon through Christ. And now Peter turns his attention to his hearers more earnestly concerning that need to call on Jesus because he begins to unveil their sin against the Lord and His Messiah. As we come to see it, we all know that the death of Christ seemed to many observers to be a surprise. But it wasn't a surprise to God. It was His plan. So we're going to see the interworking of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. Well, let's see four things as we make our way through this particular text. First, I want you to see with me, God attested Jesus before you in verse 22. Now, Peter began his sermon back in verse 14 with an address to the audience. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And then he exhorted them to give ear. Listen carefully. You need to pay attention, he was saying. Well, he does the same thing here in part 2. Verse 22, look at it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Now, to call the people Israel is not to exclude any Gentiles per se, but it is to call attention to the covenant that God made with Israel. Because Peter is about to explain that everything happening relates to God's covenant purposes. He's going to focus us particularly on what God has done in Jesus because Jesus is the Christ of the covenants. He's the focal point of everything God is doing and all that God had spoken in previous revelation. So what God is doing here in Jesus is not a deviation from His plans of old. Kind of what the religious leaders thought. They were saying Jesus must be dismissed because Jesus doesn't fit our idea of what the Messiah is. He doesn't fit our understanding of the Old Testament. Well, you got the Old Testament wrong. That's what the apostles are going to prove. So Peter is about to set them straight. But as he begins in the second portion, he tells them again, hear my words. This is a very direct statement, a command. Y'all hear. Now, of course, hear doesn't merely mean to let the sound reverberate in your eardrums. It means to listen and respond. Take it to heart. Engage your mind to welcome the word. Now, I made a comment last week on preaching. When Peter began, he lifted up his voice. And I told you that preaching is not like a waiter coming to you, offering you choices on the menu, and it doesn't matter, whatever your pleasure is. No, preaching is impassioned speech. Preaching is the command coming through a man of the king. So the preacher is speaking as a herald. But let me now remind you, in view of this command to hear that there's an additional duty of the people of God to listen. 
Peter is echoing a statement of Moses. Actually, Moses commands Israel six times alone in Deuteronomy here with the most famous being, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Jesus calls for the same response. He who has an ear, let him do what? Hear, listen. This is the very Word of God. It is bread for you. It is life for you. It is light to guide you. Now it's easy with all the deep stuff that's going on in this passage to skip past this second declaration to listen. But I don't want you to do that. When our confession of faith talks about the elements of worship, prayer, singing, the reading of Scripture, sound preaching, all the things that make worship, worship. It also mentions the element of the conscionable hearing of God's Word. Hear with your conscience engaged. Hear ready to bow to the Word as God's direction telling you what is right. Teaching you, rebuking you, correcting you, training you. And if you don't hear like this, if you're checked out, if you're distracted, if you're denying the Word, you aren't worshiping. Because you're not receiving the Word as it is. The very Word of God. It's not the Word of a man. God is addressing His people. And Peter's getting their attention with this. In fact, the fact that Peter is repeating this is to stress his authority. He's not saying, I'm over all of you people as though I'm lifted up in myself. No, he's saying, I'm about to tell you what God says. And then notice he points to God's man. Hear, O Israel, these words, men of Israel... Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's Peter highlighting as he begins? Well, let me draw your attention to three things. First, he tells us that Jesus is a man from Nazareth. Now, Peter's whole sermon will prove that Jesus is more than a man. He's the exalted Lord, the Christ, the King of glory. But He is a man. And that's a crucial truth. Jesus doesn't seem to be a man. He really is a man. He has real flesh and blood. He was truly born of a woman. He can be our Savior because He can represent us. The oldest promise of a Redeemer spoke about a seed of the woman indicating that the coming snake crusher is a man. And that's what Jesus is. Don't lose sight of that truth. Brethren, Jesus can save us because He's one of us. Jesus can blaze the trail to glory because He shares our nature. He can sympathize with us and die for us because He's like us in every way. Save our sin. Or to put it like some of the church fathers did, Jesus shares in the totality of our humanity. Because if there's any aspect of the humanity that Jesus didn't assume, that part would be unhealed. The phrase is the unassumed is the unhealed. But He's healing all of us because He's like us in every way. He's a man. But then secondly, Peter points out, He was clearly a divinely commissioned man. God the Father attested or accredited Jesus as filled with divine authority. How so? Well, God did mighty works and wonders and signs through Him. 
Just as Moses was given three signs, a staff to a snake, a normal hand, sticking your cloak, pull it back out, it's leprous, pouring out water and it became blood. And all of that proved, this is Yahweh's man, you need to listen to him. Likewise, God authenticated the man Jesus as his mouthpiece through these wonders. And the fact that these mighty words, wonders and signs, attest to Jesus' authority reminds us again, brethren, that the mighty works themselves are not central. Yes, they get your attention, but they only seal the authority that Jesus has to speak. They demonstrate the legitimacy of what He is saying. In other words, the point of the miracles is this, as it was with Moses. You better listen to Him because God is giving Him His seal. Jesus can't be dismissed. And then thirdly, Peter gets all up in their grill. You already know this. What, what God was doing. It wasn't hidden in the corner. You don't have to have a secret decoder ring to figure it out. It was happening right in your midst. God was bearing witness among you in great kindness that this is His servant. That Jesus is the one to be trusted and followed. He is the greater Moses and the greater Elijah. For both the number of miracles, if all the, the things that Jesus did miraculously were written down, the world couldn't contain the books, John says. And then the heightening of miracles, silencing the storm, healing from a distance, looking at a dead person and not praying, but simply speaking and life coming. These things say He is the greater one to come. You yourselves know these things. In other words, Peter is saying, you're accountable for what you know. You cannot ignore the work of God in Jesus. And you can't pretend that these things carry no weight and make no demands on your wife. Now, brethren, we were not there on that Pentecost day or previous to that. We weren't there to see God's attestation of power in Jesus. We didn't have the privilege of watching the miracles that Jesus performed. However, it is apparent to us through the record that we have in the Gospels that there is eyewitness testimony of what Jesus did. And we don't merely have one Gospel, do we? Or even two or three, even though every matter is established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We have four Gospels. A superlative record of the work of Jesus Christ and what demand do those gospel records make on us? They demand that we listen. They demand that we see the power of God revealed in Jesus Christ and receive His Word. They demand that we see He is full of glory and power and might and we should bow before Him. Are we paying attention to the record God has given us? Do we know that when the last day comes, we're going to be accountable for what we know? It's a wonderful thing to grow up in a Christian family to have the Word of God read to you from your earliest years. But if you don't receive it, even more judgment will come upon you. Modern man, under the slithering influence of the serpent, may try to undermine the truthfulness of God's Word or provoke doubt about the supernatural power of Jesus. But the Word of God telling us of the mighty acts of Christ 
will not be toppled. Don't ignore the testimony of the word about who Jesus is. But then secondly, see with me. Not only did God attest Jesus, God delivered Jesus up. Verse 23, everybody listening knows that Peter, sorry, knows that Jesus was delivered up to death. In fact, this is a stumbling block for many Jews here and beyond this. Those Jews will have an idea, and you can imagine this is not a wrong idea in one sense. Messiah can't die. How can He be the Savior of God's people if He goes to the cross? That's utterly absurd to the Jew. How can He be the King of glory if He perishes? How can He bring redemption if He stands before death seemingly powerless and the authorities execute Him? Well, Peter, while not yet here explaining the significance of Christ's death, that is what what it achieved, it was a death in the place of sinners to redeem them from the curse, Peter focuses his attention on the how of the cross. Why did this happen? Now, it's true from one perspective that Judas delivered Jesus up to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus up to Pilate, and Pilate delivered Jesus up to be crucified. And that language is used repeatedly in the Gospels. But behind these actions of finite man, was the hand of the infinite and eternal God. Verse 23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the sufferings of Jesus culminating in the cross, they were not an accident. The cross is not a defeat that thwarted God's purpose. It was His plan, His settled eternal purpose. He knew that Jesus would go to the cross. But He didn't foreknow it in the sense that He just looked down the corridors of time as He sees future events and recognized that it was going to happen. That clearly can't be what foreknowledge means here. He knew beforehand because He planned that event. It was His definite plan, not some vague, nebulous, I hope it works out like this. It was a very specific purpose of God that the Son of God was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That was the plan of God. Jesus going to the cross was what God is doing. And the Father is in complete control. Now, brethren, this is a point of immense comfort to us. The sovereignty of God doesn't only govern the good things of life. Our Father governs all things even the wicked acts of evil men. The Lord is not partially in control. He's fully in control. He works not some things according to the counsel of His will, but all things. Think about how the Old Testament bears witness of this. He ordained Joseph's sufferings to get him to Pharaoh's house in Egypt. And you remember Joseph, when he would talked to his brothers about the whole scene, he told them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What was God doing? God was bringing about the salvation of His people. Well, likewise, the Father delivered up His Son to the cross. If you go back to Isaiah 53, the theme is stressed in spades. God laid our iniquities on Jesus. 
God was pleased to crush Jesus as He was a guilt offering for our salvation. Or the picture of Abraham taking his son, his only son, whom he loves, to Mount Moriah and then given a substitute at the last minute. It was to picture that God would offer His only Son, whom He loved, to be our Savior. What would it mean, beloved, if the world order, and not our God, ruled? What would it mean if God didn't plan the death of Jesus? It would mean Satan wins. It would mean God can't stop evil from prevailing over us. It would mean that not one promise of all of God's good promises to you can be sure. Can you imagine the despair that would attend to your life if that was the case? But that's not the truth. God rules all things. And this is precisely the reason He can promise us that all things will work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We could have no comfort from that word without the meticulous sovereignty of God. And it's just silly that people will think God ordained these really important things, but He left everything else up to us. You can't ordain the ends without ordaining the means to get to the ends. You can't just haphazardly take a trip and hope you get where you're going. There has to be a purpose. And that's what God is doing. And Peter wants his hearers to understand Jesus' death is not the end. It doesn't dash our hopes of Christ being the Savior because this was God's plan. Wickedness has not prevailed. God is achieving His will even in this. And while Peter doesn't expand upon it here, surely this plan demonstrates the inscrutable wisdom of God, doesn't it? A perfect Savior as a man substituting His righteousness for us and then dying the cursed death that we deserve, that we who believe in Him could be saved? Marvel of marvels. However, let us not think that God's settled plan or ordination somehow excuses the evil of these men. And so often people think, if God governs all things, then that means people don't make real choices. I'm sure you've heard it before. You... Presbyterians, y'all believe people are puppets. You're just cogs in God's world with no responsibility. Well, the Bible simply won't let you draw that conclusion. God says He raised up Pharaoh to oppose Moses. That was God's plan. But Pharaoh chooses evil and is punished for it. Joseph's brothers are shown to be guilty of their crimes in handing Joseph over, but that was God's plan. Well, likewise here. Yes, God purposed to send Jesus to the cross. But those involved in Jesus' death are culpable. They delight in the sin that they're performing. Judas is the traitor, but he dies under judgment. And Jesus says that Judas was destined for destruction. Well, then Peter applies that concept. And brethren, he lays the wood to his hearers. This Jesus the very one that God attested, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You Jews, and he's specifically talking to those who were in Jerusalem, you called for Barabbas and gave Jesus over to death. You Jewish leaders, and I'm sure there were some present, 
You sought Jesus' death by giving Him over to the Romans. Those not even governed by the law of Israel. They're lawless people. You violated the principles of justice. You took the servant of the Lord who was so obviously proven to be God's man and you nailed Him to a tree. This is monstrous evil. Indeed, we could say without any exaggeration that this is the greatest evil, the greatest injustice, the most shocking abuse ever seen. How could you call for the death of the totally blameless, God-gifted Jesus? If you're here this morning and you've ever been abused, mistreated, have, have had injustice hurled at you, Jesus understands far beyond what you've even experienced. The greatest injustice man could ever take here, that, that man could pursue, is exercised against Jesus. What crime did he ever commit? Even his enemies can't accuse him of sin. They're going to produce false witnesses at his trial. And then when they bring him to Pilate, what does Pilate say repeatedly? We saw this in Luke. He's blameless. I find no guilt in him. Think of that for a second. A vile pagan, a Roman, and Pilate was known to be a particularly horrible human being, has a better sense of righteousness than God's own appointed religious leaders in Jerusalem and the people who are shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him. Even Pilate is telling you to stop and you wouldn't back down. Peter won't let up. You are responsible. You have blood on your hands. You are like Cain who knew his brother Abel was righteous and killed him anyway. Only Jesus is far greater than Abel and it heightens your sin. He won't let him off the hook. You have to see your sin. Now, we listening here this morning, we weren't there. We weren't the agents to crucify Jesus and we're not guilty of that particular sin. But if we zoom out for a moment to the big picture, knowing that God planned to send His Son to the cross and at that cross, God took all our iniquities and laid them on Jesus, we can say with the hymn writer, it was my sin that held him there. Alas, I'm the traitor. I committed treason. And in that sense too, brethren, we are guilty. Our sin called for the death of Jesus. And when we've indulged in sin, it's as though we've taken nails and taken up a hammer and drove them into our Savior's hands and feet. The point Peter is pressing to his audience, and I think Luke is pressing to us, is that in our sin, we have despised the living God. We have rebelled against Christ. We've ignored mercy from heaven. And from that sin, we must repent. And yet in our repentance, we in gratefulness can recognize this morning that even our greatest moments of folly have not overturned the plan of God. Sin, our grossest iniquities, can't win. Redeeming love is even more powerful than the vilest deed we could ever commit. 
And our sin is defeated through the Lord Jesus Christ because that is God's plan. Praise be to God for such a plan. Thirdly, see with me, God raised Jesus. Wicked men aim to destroy the Lord, to be rid of Him as though He's a vile offender, but God's verdict is different. It was God who delivered Jesus up, yes, but you took Him and crucified Him, and then the Father delivered Him. Verse 24, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Men judge Jesus as a threat to be exterminated. God judged Jesus as my servant, and therefore He vindicated His Son. He declared Him innocent in view of man's great evil. Further, He received the work that Jesus came to do, laid out in the plan of God. And what work was that? The work of satisfying the justice of the Father and bringing a perfect record to His people. And the Father proved He accepted Christ's work by raising Him up. Death was necessary for our redemption, but death can't prevail. Death, in the language here, was unable to hold Jesus with its cords. Peter's borrowing language from Psalm 18 in verse 4, which itself is a mixed metaphor. David is in grave distress in the days when Saul was trying to kill him. And he spoke of God's vindicating work. You may remember Saul tried every conceivable way to put David down, to prevent him from taking the throne. And if you read the narrative, David was nearly killed about 15 different times. But the Lord looked on His servant David, to whom He had promised the throne, and while death, as it were, aimed to wrap around David, or to labor like a woman under birth pangs, to drag David down to death, death couldn't hold on. Death couldn't achieve its goal. Death's cords were broken. Well, with Jesus... What happened in David's humiliation is just a pale reflection of Christ because Christ didn't nearly die. He was actually crucified. But like David, Jesus was promised the throne. Therefore, death's greatest efforts, death's fingers to wrap around Jesus are shattered. It's impossible for death to prevail. And why is that? Two reasons. One, it's because of who Jesus is. Jesus is a man from Nazareth, yes, but He's also mighty God. He's Emmanuel. The Son of God who had taken flesh is the eternal Word, who was with God in the beginning and is God. He cannot be overcome by death as the divine Messiah. The wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus never sinned. Death can't win. But there's a second reason here, the plan of God. Note how Peter supports the statement that it's impossible for death to conquer Jesus with an Old Testament quotation. Why can't death win? Because what God promised. Look at verse 25. David says concerning Him, this is a quotation of Psalm 16, and it's indicating that David's the author of this psalm, but the speaker is Christ. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. What David's greater son Jesus, while he has enemies that threaten him and try to make him shake under the accusation of abandonment, the Messiah saw his relationship with his father would never cease, that the father would be with him. Jesus would face the curse, but the father would not leave his son in dishonor. Verse 26, therefore, again, Jesus is the speaker, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
the anguish of Gethsemane, the pressure of facing the blackness of God's fury, brought Jesus great sorrow. You remember, He asked in the garden, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from Me. But what truth enabled Jesus to rise up from the ground weeping and say, let us be going. The betrayer is at hand. What truth enabled Him to endure the shame of the cross? It was this. God had promised victory. God had set a joy before Him. The Father gave Him His Word. What is the Word? Verse 27. For you will not abandon My soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Yes, death will reach up and grab me, but the grave will not shut its doors over me. The sinless Son of God will not be forsaken. He will not decay as though death prevails. Death is powerless to destroy our Savior's relationship with the Father. And then he reflects on the beauty of that relationship. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus, brethren, is eyeing that promise when he tells a thief on the cross beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus will live. Jesus counts on the Word of God. Brethren, do you see one more time, it's not as if this isn't a frequent point to you, but do you see that our covenant God has shown us again that His plan and not our enemies, not the sin that threatens us, His plan is always achieved. His promises never fail because Jesus lives. What an incredible thing to behold about our God. And this is being spoken a thousand years before Golgotha's gory scene that the Christ would win a victory. Well, do you see the faithfulness of God here? And it just goes alongside of Joel 2. Our God never forgets His promise. He never comes up against an obstacle. Even the thing that we perhaps fear the most, death, and say, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't do this. Our Father has the power to reach into the jaws of death and to take His loved ones home. His Word triumphs. His promise proves true. And if you don't believe that, you will go to your grave in utter despair. But if you do believe that, knowing Christ has been raised from the grave, you know death doesn't hold sting for me. And I can taunt death and know victory is mine through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a truth. What a faithful God. Finally, see with me. God swore to exalt Jesus. Peter aims to prove that his explanation of Psalm 16 is a good explanation of the text. And he tells them, hey guys, <clears throat> we can all go right now to David's tomb. We can see that David said this, but he's dead and he's buried and he clearly saw corruption. But David was a prophet. And knowing that God has sworn him an oath that he would set one of his own descendants on the throne, David foresaw that as he looked by faith forward and he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's talking about the oath, the covenant promise of 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord made a promise to David that one from his line would come and have a forever kingdom, sit on a forever throne, that the Father would call Him Son, 
and His throne will be established forever. Now, what word did I just tell you three times? Forever. It's in the text three times. There can be no forever if Jesus stays dead. There can be no forever if sin prevails. But that's not what will happen. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but somehow, we're not told yet in 2 Samuel 7 how, but somehow, sin will be defeated and death will be overcome. Well, Peter now says, that is this. This is being fulfilled. The Messiah would not be swallowed by corruption. It's what God's Word told us. You guys have not been reading the Old Testament rightly. Resurrection is right there in the covenant promises of God. And then to be very emphatic, Peter says, verse 32, and we close with this, this Jesus raised up, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We're not following cleverly devised tales. We're not hallucinating. We're not pulling the greatest con in the history of mankind. And they already said we weren't drunk. We have seen it. Peter means himself and the eleven official witnesses. <clears throat> what a testimony that is. Not just two or three witnesses, but twelve. And that's not even counting the 120 that are present at Pentecost. and not even counting the 500 brethren who saw Christ alive at one time. We know, he's saying, that God's promise through Jesus is proven true. And what does it mean? It means this Jesus, the one you guys killed, the one who worked wonders and signs, this Jesus is the one that God has raised. And if this Jesus is the Christ, what do you need to do? We're kind of getting to the end before we're at the end. But don't you feel the weight of the response? There's only one thing to do. You must worship Him as the victor over the grave. You must bow to Him as the exalted King. You must listen to what He tells you and give Him your life and follow Him because that's what the sheep of the Good Shepherd do. Only He can save you from Satan, sin, and death. Now, probably every one of you, before you walked into worship this morning, you knew the facts already that Peter laid out in the sermon. God attested Jesus with miracles. God delivered Jesus up. God raised Jesus from the dead. God has kept His promise to King David by bringing the Christ. You know all of that already. So what? Brethren, are we relying totally on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we submitting to Him as King, knowing that He reigns over us? Do we believe with our whole heart that this is the truth and act like in God's universe, everything revolves around Christ? Is He your sun and your shield? Is He your King? Do you live every moment for Him? Is every thought taken captive and given to Christ? Do you not just give lip service to Christ? Is your life devoted to Him? And maybe you think, well, you just don't know how great of a sinner I am. No, I, I, I don't. I know how great a sinner I am. But I also know that these people being told this truth killed Jesus. And there's an appeal of mercy to their souls. And if the Lord would save them, does He not have compassion to save the likes of us? And furthermore, does He not have compassion to draw us all in afresh to worship His holy name for what He's done? May we see the greatness of our Redeemer 
and the greatness of God's plan to save people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we marvel at Your sovereignty, at Your power, at Your compassionate heart, at Your willingness to confront our sin and yet to give us mercy as we look unto Christ. And Father in Heaven, we pray that we would not simply embrace the facts and assent to them. We pray that we would put our trust in Jesus. For Lord, we know that the only refuge to be found in the day of wrath is that refuge in Christ as our rock. Make us stand upon Him and follow His voice. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.